Okay, welcome everybody. Um, thank you for coming today. Um, this is a stage for new parenthood. Um, I'm Stephanie Guest. My collaborator Kate Riggs couldn't be here today. She's stuck in London at her job, but um, I've, I've got notes from her. So she's here in, in spirit and she's sent three of her family members who are scattered across who have made the trip down from Canberra to help um, today. So I feel like Kate Riggs is here. Um, even so. But just before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the Yalakut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land that we're on. Um, the Yalakut Willem are part of the Bunurong, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. Um, and we pay our respects to the land, their ancestors and their elders past, present and future and just acknowledge that um, sovereignty was never ceded to them. Yeah. Um, okay, so please, given that we're on land that we don't really, we can't claim anything to, to um, please make yourself comfortable here. We've brought cushions um, from our family of institutions, so can thank the uh, Arts Centre, the State Library of Victoria, the National Portrait Gallery in Canberra, uh, the Riggs family for their rugs, um, one from my own living room. And um, yeah, please just use the space as your own. Baby Rest have donated all the change mats that they're up up there at the top, um, which we'll be giving to St Kilda mums at the end of this series. But please just, you know, use it as you would at home. Change your nappy, where, your, your baby's nappy, where, <laughs> wherever you need to. Use the change mats if you want. Grab one, bring it down. Don't feel like you have to use the space as it is now. We, Kate and I are keen to see how you use it. It's sort of a, an act of observation for us about how parents use space. So just do whatever you want to do and please don't feel self-conscious about anything like babies crying or needing to feed. We've also installed a microwave there if you need to heat up a bottle or any food. Um, the closest toilets, are the best ones probably are at the gallery. The art centre ones are not really functioning at the moment. You have to go to, down to the um, basement. So probably go to the gallery. They do have a parent's room, but ours is better. Um, yeah, so please just... Do whatever you need to do. Um, we have some release forms floating around because we've got Layla who's sitting up the back taking photos. So, yeah, let us know if you're happy to have your baby and you photographed in the space or, and also if not, but Layla needs to know um, so that we don't breach your privacy. Um, the other things, just to thank M Pavilion for having us here today and to let us use this space and take it over like this. Um, it's really fun to be able to take over a kind of sleek architectural installation and make it kind of kitsch and, and ugly. Kate and I have been talking about, we relinquish aesthetic control for our baby's needs. So we've got a hodgepodge of, of cushions that don't match and um, yeah, rugs that are just kind of all over the place. Um, cool. So yeah, this series really came about um, after I had my baby, Mabel, who's over there on the, on the beanbag. Um, I met up with my friend Kate, who's a friend from high school. We tried to have coffee in the city and it was just a total disaster. We, we went to a really cool cafe that didn't have comfortable seats. Um, Mabel was only a few months old and just wouldn't stop crying no matter what I did. I was feeding her. I had milk spraying all over the place. I thought she might need a nappy change, but there was just nowhere suitable to do that. And it was this kind of disaster day where we just couldn't find the right space to do anything and I started to feel increasingly anxious and I didn't know if Mabel was ever going to fall asleep ever again and 
Kate, who's an architect, and I started talking about what are the spatial implications of having a baby, what spaces are you really excluded from when you have these accessibility needs, um, and we ended up writing a correspondence um, that ended up being an essay that we submitted to the Lifted Brows competition for um, experimental nonfiction. And we ended up winning that, which is really surprising and exciting. And then I was flicking through Instagram during a long breastfeeding session and saw that M Pavilion was advertising. Uh, they did a call for proposals for events. And I just wrote to Kate. It was the day that it was due. And I wrote to Kate, like, okay, what do you reckon we could turn this into an event like, and take over this space? Um, and we did this really hasty application. Mabel started screaming and I had to kind of hand it over to her. Said, Kate, can you please finish it? I can't. Um, I can't now. And then a few weeks later, we got the confirmation from M Pavilion. And um, yeah, so it's all kind of come about just from that lived experience of having Mabel. Um, and really delighted that you're all here today. Um, cool. So yeah, we wanted to kind of invert this usually very private spectacle. So we hope that while you're mostly parents here, that also some non-parents will come and, and see what it's like to have a baby in, in, in a public space and what makes it a comfortable and usable space. Um, so this first session, we're focusing on the domestic. We've decided to split our events. We've got four, one in November, December, and January. And we'll go house, street, district, and then city. And we're basing that on um, a division created by the architects Peter and Alison Smithson, who were working in Britain in the 1950s, sort of mid-century, mid-20th century. Um, I've got lots of notes from Kate about why we're using that, but I might sort of leave that for conversation later because it's probably too theoretical for right now. Um, but yeah, I guess we're curious about what does, what, what's the domestic space like when you have a baby? What kind of stuff do you need? What control do you relinquish? What do you need to make yourselves feel comfortable? Um, and yeah, like I was listening to Jack Self's talk. He, he was here. Um, he gave it lecture for M Pavilion at the start of their session. And he was talking also, though, about the violence of the domestic and how it's a closed space, necessarily. So while it's sort of warm and comfortable, there's also an implicit exclusion um, of others from that space. So I'm also sort of thinking about opening that up. And so we've kind of got a public domestic space, which is kind of a paradox today. Um, all right, so we're really lucky to have Jessica Friedman here today. She's come down from Canberra for the event. Um, so welcome, Jessica. Um, I sort of am aware of Jessica from lots of different places, but I was working at a literary agency when she sent a proposal for a book. Um, she was writing about postnatal depression, and at the time I'd not considered having a baby at all, and I thought, okay, this sounds interesting, but it's not related to me at all. Um, passed it on to one of the agents and then... Um, it was published just around the time that I had Mabel, my daughter, and so all of a sudden it became very relevant to me, and when it was released, it was sort of probably the trickiest time of motherhood for me. I think we were 10 weeks in, sleep deprivation was hitting, I felt like I probably couldn't get through the day very much, and I really wanted to go to the launch, and we almost didn't make it, but Mabel fell asleep in the carrier, and we went, and I... It was really, it was kind of, I guess, my first cultural event as a parent, and that was really significant for me. And I read the book, just, I devoured it, and it was so relevant to my experience, and I felt so comforted to know that there was 
this piece of literary work that wasn't just a parenting book or, you know, a book of advice, but it was someone's experience written in a beautiful and reflective way. So I was really keen to have Jess here to reflect on domestic space and mental health and parenthood. Um, and then we've got Studio Neon here, uh, Caitlin Parry and Natalie Miles, who Kate met at RMIT. Um, they're an emerging architecture practice. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about them before they speak about their work. But we're going to have story time now. Um, Jess is going to read from her book, and I'll read a little section from the piece Kate and I wrote, and Studio Neon will present some of their work. Then we'll have playtime so, to just let loose and have more coffee and do whatever. And then afterwards we'll have a Q&A and um, talk with you guys because you're also the performers today. Um, keen to hear how, what you think of the space, what you want from the city as a new parent and also for you to ask the speakers some questions. So, yeah, I'll, I'll introduce Jess. Um, she is a Canberra-based writer and editor and her essays and other non-fiction have appeared widely both in Australia and internationally. Things That Help, her book, um, was published this year by Scribe and it's her first published collection. So could please help me welcome Jess Friedman. Is this on? Yes? Yes? Okay, good. Um, I thought I'd read one of the very early essays from my book, um, partly because the later ones are and can be a little bit distressing, but also because I realised towards the end of the book just how many pages I had spent describing interiors, just like every chapter that I wrote, I just described a house in great detail. And it's not really a surprise because that's the environment that I was moving in, in very early parenthood. And this chapter is just about moving house, essentially. It's called Fur. By the time we moved to Footscray, Owen is a secret seed, secret even from me. All the time he is there as I lug cardboard boxes and scrub paint from sinks and paint the rental we are leaving a dingy shade of beige, the same shade that, on moving in, we had painted over in pale, pale celery green. It is too early for a rising tide of nausea to clue me to his existence. He is simply, secretly there. Almost from the minute that Mike and I begin seeing each other, we talk about our child, the child that we will one day have. It should seem much too soon, but nothing feels more natural than lying in the sun at the park, drinking coffee and eating warm bread rolls from the bakery, sketching out our future plans, running a and b in rural Hungary if I sort out my citizenship, which I still haven't done, travelling to Berlin, living on a vast property deep in the mountains, and always with a baby in tow. Our child will be called Coralie after my great-aunt, or maybe Ivy, Gabriel for a boy. When we get married, the fantasies drop away, but the longing for a child remains. We manage to postpone the craving throughout my honours thesis. Mike enrolls in a master's. We do everything we can to pace ourselves, to not jump in, to not give in to this deep, visceral craving for the milky smell of a newborn scalp, until at last we do give in. It is a surprise to me how much I want a baby. And unbeknownst to me, unpacking boxes in our beautiful new terrace in Footscray, I am hiding the beginnings of one. Counting backwards, I work out that Owen must have been conceived at or just after Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. New Year, new life. It should be an augury, but I am too nervous to invest the pregnancy with any special symbolism or significance. All I want when I learn the news is to make it through to Christmas, six weeks away, for this small ball of matter to become robust and staunch and truly embedded in the lining of his small but swelling home. And then I will believe it. 
then I will breathe out. I have always wanted to guard the things I find precious, and in this way I am not good at sharing. I am superstitious. Believing in it too much, wanting it too much, will inevitably mean that I will lose this pregnancy, I think. Though to the best of my knowledge, I have not lost one before. I have suspected a loss, and that felt aching and raw. And in a small way, I grieved it, and it was real grief. I feel like a village woman telling her neighbour their new child is ugly, so as not to draw the attention and jealousy of God. The morning I suspect I might be pregnant, I take a test, then wipe it clean and carefully bring it into the bedroom, rousing Mike. Does this say what I think it does? Mike looks at the test and its firm pink declarative line. We're having a baby, he says groggily and pulls me in his arms. Somehow even knowing this, the day continues as usual. It is not until a work trip to Tasmania the next week upon which Mike has accompanied me and where we camp high up in the mountains that the fact begins to sink in for him with any clarity and brilliance. We're having a baby, he hollers to the ferns in the fern gully where we have tramped along a rough dirt track. The air is richly oxygenated from the lush green foliage. The forest floor dense with scuttling creatures in the undergrowth. Spiderwebs hold drops of moisture and the night dark earth seems fertile enough for anything dropped there to take root. Mike grips my hand tightly when we pick our way down the rocks, promising a steady landing. He wants to tell people when we return, but I hold to my Christmas deadline, superstitious, self-imposed. I have felt the faint tremors of quickening, but I only let myself breathe out properly much later at our second ultrasound, when we first glimpse the shape of our child. The ultrasound technician guides the probe around adeptly, angling it lightly into the small hill of my jellied stomach, leaving out identifying details at first in case we don't wish to know them. Do you want to find out the gender? She asks. Sex, I silently correct. And then, yes. <laughs> A slight twist of the probe, and then there he is, revealed. Tucked up into himself with a small outreaching shadow of his five fingers, making a whole hand, a whole hand we can see. <laughs> the little girl I am half convinced I am carrying floats away, and instead, waving from the deep, is this new and unknown thing, a little boy. As we inch towards Christmas and the weather gets hotter and drier, each week of viability feeling like a clandestine accomplishment, the nausea becomes more intense. I find out for the first time about food aversions, which are much stronger and more visceral than any of my cravings. The provisions I had thought would carry me through my pregnancy, licorice and pickles and dark chocolate and potato chips, are too oily, too salty, too acidic by turns. The only thing I want to eat is pho. I lie anchored to the couch, moored against the sticky leather with the dry pages of an Agatha Christie novel rustling in the wind, which comes in sudden rushes through our open windows, while Mike traipses up to our local, Hien Vong Pasteur. The main drag of Footscray is lined with Vietnamese restaurants, interspersed with relics of the past, like Cavallero, the pastry shop, or further down, Sudanese and Ethiopian food. The competition for best fur is fierce, but we have found our local and loyal customers. For your wife, the owner asks when Mike comes in, and Mike nods, and soon he is home with two plastic containers, one full of slightly gelatinous rice noodles topped with thin slices of chicken, and the other of rich chicken broth. A little plastic bag of sliced chilli, Vietnamese mint, bean shoots and lemon rounds out the meal, and I carefully pour out half the broth and noodles into a saucepan and put the rest in the fridge, a safeguard against the next day's nausea. It is nice to be known. 
Every morning I walk to work past the little Saigon market, angling past men in aprons and gumboots unloading their trucks from the fish market. And every morning the sight of glossy-eyed trout and snapper and bream brings up a wave of muggy heat beneath my skin. I think of my growing child, due in July. He will be a cancer, a cavorting little crab. I have never believed in astrology, but now I become avid about the signs, trying to prophesy our future child's personality. Mike is an Aries, I a Capricorn. Private, creative, stubborn, the charts say. An earth sign. It is true that I need to walk into the back garden and plant my feet in the cool grass of an evening, watching the sky change colour, from parched blue to an industrially shocking pink and then to a pale apricot grey. I am greedy for the sunset. At dusk, the suburb smells like eucalypts and fish sauce. We see in the new year at a writer's house in Brunswick, newly built upon a tiny patch that she and her partner have bought, requisitioned from someone's backyard. Though the house is complete, the garden is still unfinished, and we stand in a dugout patch amongst uncovered pipes as music blares and the sky fills with fireworks. The pregnancy is still hidden, though I think that I can feel my stomach swell, just the smallest bit, beneath the cool and slippery fabric of my dress. Mike puts his hands on my stomach as our friends clamber to the top of our host's old van, shrieking their midnight exhilaration into the sky. Dead sober and glowing with sweat, I struggle homeward with Mike at 3am, losing my favourite lipstick along the way. We, when we finally find a taxi, it first takes us south, then out west. Melbourne is a city split by a river, the Yarra, and people talk of north and south. But now we are heading into new terrain, demarking a point towards which the compass hasn't already swung in our three years and four houses together. Home. I have fallen in love with the Footscray years earlier, schlepping out from Brunswick for a contract stint at Lonely Planet, feeling immediately calmer as I walked down to the banks of the Maribyrnong. My grandparents used to have a shop here, Shmata, in the suburb's first wave of migration before the Ethiopians ebbed, sorry, the Europeans ebbed and the Vietnamese flowed, and then the Sudanese, Ethiopian, Congolese, Somali. My grandparents left when a pig's head turned up on their doorstep. The meaning was unmistakable. Nonetheless, I came back and I loved it. Sometimes I feel a twinge of guilt. Mike and I and the friends who begin to move westwards cannot avoid that we are the harbingers of change. The crest of a wave of gentrification that will soon firmly crash, driving house prices upward and long-time residents out of their homes and closing us all out when rents soar beyond our means. I walk around every room of the terrace ritualistically, blessing our books, our paintings, our spoons, our second-hand furniture, the gold metallic fringe we have hung around our low-hanging light fixtures. We call them disco chandeliers, and Mike's head brushes through the fringe if he forgets to look where he is walking. But the long strands glimmer as they move in the afternoon light. Owen ripples and flexes. The curve of my stomach is not hidden now. It pushes insistently outward, the only place I carry any weight until my eighth month, when my face suddenly balloons. I order a few maternity skirts early on, a pair of jeans, trying to get through the pregnancy as cheaply as I can. When my own birthday passes and the nausea drops away, Mike and I wander down to Vien Huang to sit together in the window and watch the world past. Tet, the Vietnamese New Year, fills the streets with neon lights and wild noise and smells that wind together on the breeze so that hints of fur are caught up in the doughiness of bao and the oil of Korean swirl potato 
a newly invented traditional snack like a potato cake on a stick. I exult in these smells which no longer hold the power to upset my balance. It is the year of the dragon now, magnanimous, imperious, strong. I talk to the hospital psychiatrist once a fortnight, trying to gird myself for what might come next. Because I have a history of depression and anxiety, this feels like a sensible step, but I am giddy with joy over the pregnancy and the shadow side of it doesn't touch me. These 50-minute hours feel like homework, virtually completed, virtuously completed, but at base unnecessary. At work, a colleague laughs when I suddenly swing around, my stomach appearing like an optical illusion from my otherwise unchanged frame. The weather becomes cooler, the days shorter. Mike turns 29 and we hold a celebration at our favourite Ethiopian joint, Lucy, named after a famed ancestral hominid, also known as Tinknesh. Afterwards, we all retreat to the house, where a list of names is inked up on thick paper on the wall. Gabriel, Theodore, Owen, Henry, and one other name I cannot now remember. We should vote, my friend Juliet crows, and suddenly people are passing around bits of chopped up paper, folding them and dropping them into a plastic mixing bowl. Teddy is my choice, a beautiful little boy. Mike is determined, has held the secret knowledge all along that our child will be named Owen. And when the papers are returned, Owen is the winner. I don't know whether the votes have been rigged. It is Mike's birthday and he gets his wish. And soon I cannot think of our little crab as being anyone else. The suburb is quieter now in the mornings, the cool air misting over the concrete. A monk stands outside the market, a brass bowl in his hand. In the grey of early hours, he looks like a human marigold, puncturing the gloom with his saffron robe and high-vis orange socks. As the cold creeps in, I stew for hours in the bath. Mike comes into the bathroom periodically with a kettle of boiling water to top up the heat after the gas runs out. Occasionally, he will come in and sit on the floor, playing his guitar and drinking a beer. His jumper sleeve pulls down over his hand when he touches the bottle. My stomach rises higher and higher over the bathwater until I can no longer submerge it. My immense breasts float like islands, connected by an atoll beneath the surface. Like Archimedes, I displace more and more water. Mike is in the kitchen, boiling the kettle. Mike, Mike, I yell. He runs in panicked and then stares in wonder as he sees for the first time our baby's little foot kicking against my skin and making the shape of my smooth stomach buckle and distort. Owen arrives in the bowels of the year, the dreary cold that seems to last forever. He arrives on a Wednesday, which the nursery rhyme prophecies will mean a life filled with woe. As the hospital reminds me, I am predisposed to woe. He is 18 months old when we pack up the boxes again, when we take the art off the walls and wrap it in bubble wrap, and when the wrap runs out, clean tea towels and faded pillowcases. We take the fringe down from the lights and soap off the grimy residue that the double-sided tape has left. It is stiflingly hot again, a new January, Janus-faced. I am a January baby, Janus-faced myself. We turn around and orient ourselves towards the east, away from the river and towards the salt of the ocean, St Kilda, where my parents live and where Mike and I have lived before. This is where my grandparents and my father got off the boat, my grandfather declaring once he stood on dry, unheaving land that he wouldn't go a metre further. That is the story, and it is probably untrue. But I recognise the impulse to plant yourself firmly in one place and become immovable as stone. 
I think of consulting tea leaves, but in truth, they look just like tea. In truth, it is months since I have made up a pot, boiling the water and then letting it cool, rinsing out a cup, sitting in one place long enough to enjoy it. And the magic of augury has waned. I have never believed with more than half a heart in revelations, but I am not sure now whether I am more concerned that they will or will not come true. For the child at my feet, forcing me to sip tea out of a mug over the sink is not a little crab at all. He is something much stranger and more terrifying and profound, a creature made of my fear and flesh and bone. Thank you, Jess. That was beautiful. And I think the lull of your voice, um, very calming in, in this space. So thank you. Um, I'm just going to read really briefly from the piece that Kate and I wrote that was the seed of this whole idea. Um, it's a bit weird to read because I wrote um, in quick snippets of time when Mabel was asleep on in a notebook that I carried around with me and when she would wake up, our rule was I would take a photo of whatever I'd written and I'd text it to her in London and it was just as it was, unfinished, um, fragmentary and she would respond. And so it's published, my text is sort of in the main page and hers is the kind of marginalia um, responding to me. So I'll, I'll do my best reading it aloud but I've, I haven't done this before, I'm not sure um, how it will go. And just to say, if, you, if you're keen to read the whole thing, it's in the current edition of The Lifted Brow, which is an excellent independent magazine um, that needs your support. Um, okay, so it's called An Architecture of Early Motherhood. Um, all right, 26th May 2017, 10.38, at the dining table, the baby is upstairs in her cot, grizzling between sleep cycles. I was studying architecture when I got pregnant. My second undergraduate degree... Centrelink said they wouldn't pay. I asked for an assignment extension and my lecturer, crimson velvet top, cowboy boots, lots of eyeliner, said, in her thick Spanish accent, this is very political. I started taking up more space in the hallways. Tutors looked at me awkwardly. At the end of semester, my lecturer summoned me into her glass box office and proffered a manual breast pump, a baby carrier, and two velour leopard print baby onesies. She lifted her top and put the device to her breast, exaggerating a pumping motion. See, you could do this in a lecture. It's very political. She strapped the carrier to her torso and clipped and unclipped it with one hand. This gives you independence. And now this is Kate's response. 22nd of May, well, it's sort of retrospective actually here, 2017, 7.20 p.m., in Anne's green-blue kitchen, London. I'm in London again, continuing, attempting, a new start of sorts. I'm unsure of what I want from this chosen isolation. My mum is supportive. Solitude is a rare luxury. 7.40, the cat Tilly comes into the kitchen. And then we kind of move into the domestic space, so I'll just read that a little bit. 2nd of May, 12.34, on the 64 tram, the baby's asleep in the pram. We taped alfoil over the windows, pane by pane. The high circular window was the trickiest. Truncated circle with thick, thick dimpled glass, 
usually lets in diffuse afternoon light. Now, nothing. Patrick climbed the ladder. I passed strips of masking tape up to him. The seal on the rectangular window is dodgy, though. We hadn't thought of that. Air seeps through and now rattles the foil, a shimmer sound too irregular to be white noise. We select rain on our baby sleep app and rip the foil down. 26th of May, 10.44, at the dining table, the baby asleep upstairs. At sleep school, light filters in around the blinds. Patrick twitches, holds the edges down. The nurse says it doesn't matter. And then Kate's response. 22nd of May, 8.15pm, in Anne's kitchen, with tea. I'm staying in the guest room at my godmother Anne's for three weeks. She doesn't have many visitors and I'm the most permanent resident to be accommodated in the room for years. One consequence of this is the presence of an ill-considered blind on the western wall of the room, directly behind the head of the bed. When drawn at night, it reveals itself to be too short to cover the full height of the window. In winter, this wasn't a problem, but I discover that now the rising of the sun illuminates the room and my forehead at 5am. After a few early awakenings, I learned to use the ample cushions on the bed as a shield, wedging them between the ornate bedhead and the windowsill. This imperfect solution seems fitting for my state of transience, a secret nighttime adjustment in a room that is not mine. And then she ends. 9.10pm, the sun has set and the kitchen is now dark aside from the glow of my laptop. I move upstairs to the guest room. That's all I'll read for today. So I'll, I'll pass over. That's kind of the bridge between the literary and the, the architecture. So I studied literature before studying architecture. So sort of moving. We're interested in this cross-disciplinary approach to ideas as well, the kind of literary and the architectural. So I'll pass now over to the, the real architects, um, Natalie and Caitlin, um, I'll just introduce you guys. Um, so yes, yeah, Studio Nuance is an emerging practice, um, an ongoing collaboration between Caitlin Parry and Natalie Miles, who are friends, and I, you met at RMIT, is that right, yeah. while studying? Um, Kate was keen to invite these guys because we thought they had sort of similar parallels to our collaboration in that um, Natalie's child, Elliot, was born just around the time that they started collaborating. So they've been dealing with this kind of negotiation of a collaborator with a new child and then someone without and kind of dealing with that kind of awkwardness, I suppose. Um, um, and, yeah, Kate also met them at RMIT and this project offered a way for us to kind of formalise a, a collaboration and a conversation with them about this form of including babies into artistic practice. Um, Natalie works with Austin Maynard Architects um, outside of their collaboration and she'll be talking a little bit about some of the work she's done with them later, in, later today. And Caitlin teaches at RMIT, Melbourne and Monash Universities and also works at MAP, which is the gallery at Monash, um, with artist Callum Morton. Um, so yeah, welcome, welcome Studio Neon and I think Elliot's just arrived. Welcome Elliot. So yeah. He's just woken up. Um, anyway, please help me welcome them. They're going to talk about their collaboration. So, you're having a little performance on how we work together at the moment. One second. 
Okay, so we'll try and start and there may be interruptions, but we thought that's kind of a performance of how we work and if we can't do it at this event, then <laughs> where can we do it? Um, so we thought we'd start by... Um, I'll just talk a little bit about a project that I worked on with Austin Maynard Architects that is quite fitting to the idea of uh, house and small children. Um, so we call this house the Toy Management House, um, which gives you a bit of an indication of the drivers of the project. There was kind of two main design drivers behind it. That's okay. The first being a, a light-filled home, um, which this is a standard Melbourne narrow terrace at five metres wide, so that was the real... <laughs> it's okay. Sorry. So the first design driver was a really light-filled home and the second was a way to manage the stuff that comes along with a new child. The client um, had a brand new baby at the time that she came to us, um, so that was really something that was in the forefront of her mind or life. Um, I guess to deal with the... The posters have kind of fallen down, but I think it's okay. During the next break, you can feel free to have a wander around and look at the images and um, you can kind of see what I'm referring to. It's kind of hard to talk about architecture without images, but we're going to give it a try. Um, so... Um, for the first point of the... <laughs> Bananas are a no today. Um, so to get light into a long, narrow terrace is one of those things that clients come to us all the time, kind of thinking, you know, we need light in our homes, but we don't want to move out to the suburbs. How can we make these inner suburbs more livable? Um, and what we did in this house is we introduced a courtyard into the middle of the house, kind of between where the existing house stopped and the new extension started. And that was like a... That's a really great way to get light into the house and it also means that um, the block feels a lot larger than if you just have a long, narrow house going all the way. Um, in this house, which wouldn't work for everyone... The kitchen then moved into the corridor facing onto this light well in the middle, which um, really allowed, really kind of opened up the space again and allowed us to um, open up the rest of the back of the extension. And this, this is a way that, I guess, dealing with clients and their needs specifically really results in architecture that is specific to them and it's a way that we can, um, you know, test out new ideas and develop spaces that are specific to the occupiers. Uh, so the second point in dealing with the stuff that comes along with a small child is tricky in any, any situation, um, especially a narrow Victorian terrace. I guess the typical way is you put a whole lot of storage along one of the walls. But in this situation where the house is only five metres wide, you, you lose that space that you could be living in. So what we did in this house is we turned the floor 
into a giant toy box. So <laughs> the, the floor of the hollow of it, the extension becomes a toy box, um, which works for storage, but it also really works with the, the child-parent-cleaning-up dynamic that exists. Usually um, gravity is on the side of the child, so they'll pull stuff down and you're constantly picking things up. Whereas this way we could work it so if your child gets all the toys out, all you need to do is kind of open up the floor, sweep them in, and you're done. <laughs> and then the child actually needs to pick them up and pull them out with the toy box, and it all starts again. But the other great thing about it is it was 450 high, so it becomes a seat that you can sit on the edge of the toy box and kind of play and chat. Um, it also is a good height for kids to kind of climb around underneath, so you've got an instant cubby house as well. Um, so there were the two main things that um, kind of we were... Oh, yeah, there's a couple of images here that just give you an idea. This one closest to me shows you the raised floor that the toy box is kind of hidden within. Um, and that one is, a, is actually me when I was pregnant with Elliot. Um, and the other trick is we... Um, made the stair out of this really lightweight perforated steel so it didn't block any of the, the light and it actually kind of set up this engagement between the, the two levels of the house so you can kind of see and talk through it. Yeah. Um, I guess, so moving into the work that Kate and I do as Studio Neon, I guess it kind of sets up... Uh, we started talking more seriously about it after I'd had Elliot, so this is kind of all in chronological order as well. Um, yeah, so Nat and I met at university, as was told. Um, so we started talking about setting up some kind of studio when we finished um, Masters of Architecture together. So despite the intensity of doing a Masters of Architecture, um, it was also kind of magical in that we occupied the whole level of the design hub. So we Nat bought a mini fridge, we had a, a cupboard with all the different teas, we bought lots of plants, um, and we really and the fridge, yep. Um, and we really kind of occupied it like a home, which they've now kind of gone events and you, you can't actually do that anymore at, at RMIT. But essentially it cemented some friendships, so is that better? Okay. Um, there was about another four of us, essentially, so we were kind of working in a very intense way, but I think we'll be friends forever. So while none of us had any adrenal capacity to keep going in this kind of condition, when we finished, we all, like, lamented the fact that we kind of missed it. We missed the, the friendships. It's like when you finish high school, it's like you kind of want to leave, but just seeing those people every day is quite lovely. Um, so we kind of started talking about setting up something. We didn't really want to set up a traditional architecture practice. We wanted more to kind of have the lightness and the funness around um, what you get from a design studio. So more like an art practice, um, maybe some small design proposals, but not kind of freaking out about Excel spreadsheets and costings. Um, so we, we both have jobs, like I work at least five days a week, networks four days a week, so it wasn't like we kind of necessarily wanted to set up something gung-ho. Um, yeah, so 
is a long story behind the name, but the, the abridged version that everyone will actually understand rather than a private joke is that we just called it Studio Neon and it was more of a kind of platform for us to engage with these ideas. You know, when you name something, it, it has a kind of sense of authenticity um, and an agency to it. So we've just been doing little things under this banner of Studio Neon. Um, yeah, so I guess the other thing that we uh, missed about finishing uni is just the the kind of place to be part of a bigger conversation about, um, I guess, what architecture can be an influence in society. Um, as much as we love our day work, it's good to have a balance to that as well, where we can kind of, you know, think about crazy ideas and, and kind of run with it for a little bit without having any pressure of um, production. Yeah, billable hours. Yeah. Um, and I guess, so we kind of see Studio New and it's a, a place that we can experiment with these ideas um, through smaller scale interventions and installations. Um, and they kind of have a, a speed and immediacy to it that architecture does not usually have. Um, it usually takes several years <laughs> to get something kind of to a finished product. Um, and I guess also a way for us to experiment with our different aesthetics of... Um, I've tended to be a lot more on the analogue style and Kate's a lot more in the digital world. Um, so it's kind of... We're kind of excited about how we can overlap those, those two ways of thinking. Yeah. Um, so I guess we don't... I mean, we, in terms of Nat having a kid right at the beginning of us trying to talk about how to set one up, I guess it just limited um, the way in which we could work or we just had to work around it kind of organically. Um, so we typically work at Nat's house, so around naps and, and sleeps. Um, we don't kind of have the luxury of just sitting down together for eight hours, but we often just talk about the project conceptually, divvy up some parts, work a little bit together and then go our ways and then do the work where it kind of works for us so it's not so kind of intense. And I guess that's kind of... Uh, come out in, in what we produce. So although we would love to spend hours and hours and days producing these beautiful, refined drawings, it's just not feasible at the moment. We would rather just actually do some stuff, you know, churn through it. Yeah, it's not perfect, but you, you just got to get it out. Otherwise, you live in your head. Oh, yeah. Um, so I guess one of the first projects that we did was a, a competition entry. So the competition was to imagine what a workplace um, will be like in 2030. So it asked us to kind of look at how technology can be a force of modernisation and how it will actually change offices. But we thought this was a good opportunity to critique current workplaces um, and just for their rigidity in adapting to um, <laughs> parenting in a spatial sense. Um, so it's not like it's a particularly realistic project that we were going for, but we thought that we could come up with a kind of concept that would enable um, parenting and working together to happen in a little bit more kind of conducively. So our proposal was essentially born out of the fact that every time I'd go to Nats, we'd inevitably end up doing a lap around Coburg, walking, um, walking Elliot in the pram asleep. So we came up with the idea of this um, deconstructed office where there were pods around Coburg or any other suburb for that matter, where you could park your pram, you could do something and then you could go another walk for another 10 minutes and then keep going. So, I mean, you probably can't see from where you guys are, but we, in orange, maybe that pops out a little bit. It's just a standard 
cartoon version of a suburb with these orange office pods that are all highly flexible and they fold out and everything. So it's, it's not obviously to engineering specs or anything. But in terms of the idea that we could um, break out from this solid singular um, item of an office. So the main drivers of the designs were just flexibility, pram parking and kind of kid accommodation. You could sleep, you could fold it out, you could join them up and have um, kind of conferences. So that was a light-filled, fun kind of um, design proposal that we made. And I guess it kind of fits with the premise of the event that, um, you know, how your, your interactions with the world change quite dramatically when you have a child in a lot of unexpected ways. And I guess Kate kind of came along for the ride, right. <laughs> literally. Um, and so we were really kind of responding to those things that were actually happening in our lives um, at that point. Um, and I guess leading on for that, we were then kind of questioning, what, well, why is, you know, work-life kind of programmed in this nine-to-five, sit-at-a-desk, be productive the whole time? I don't think it, you know, it doesn't necessarily work for anyone, not just new parents, you know. Is that really how it works best for us to work or would it be better for everyone to be able to take a little walk around the block and have a bit more focus time? Yeah. Should we talk about a mobile now? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Do you want to introduce it? Yeah. Uh, so the mobile. So Kate and Steph approached us just because, well, A, we knew them, but also being a kind of parent-non-parent duo thing that we're trying to establish. Um, so we thought about what kind of, what could we bring to the space as an object. So we thought about the themes that, that Steph was talking about, the home, the, the street, the district and the city, and just the fact that the home is where you're the kind of most intimate with yourself, like everything is allowed, and the further away you get from that, the more sanitised and kind of controlled you have to be. Um, so we thought about... Uh, were you talking about the next bit, maybe? Because okay. that leads on to it. Yeah. So I guess in referencing the, the theme of the event being house, I guess we were thinking about, well, what, what is the difference between the house and the home? Um, and I guess the home kind of speaks to the, the lives and events that happen inside. So maybe... At, uh, a home is a house with people and stuff in it, I guess is how we were looking at it. Yeah. Um, and so the mobile, the top layer of the mobile will be kind of instantly recognisable as these, like, baby imagery, like everything you buy has a cup, smiling cupcake or, a, you know, a cloud that's sleepy or, a, a, I don't know, some other strange cute thing. Cute thing. thing. Um, and I guess... The layers below that are, are images of stuff that your life becomes filled with when you have a child. Um, and I guess the cutesy images um, make, lead you to believe that life with a baby is all kind of giggles and cuddles and rainbows. But in reality, you're surrounded by mountains of stuff uh, that fills every part of your life. And I guess this also references the isolation that you can feel um, as a new parent, um, where this, all this stuff that you have to take with you is not kind of welcome in the public sphere. 
Um, you know, you can't have crying babies in galleries or prams taking up value sp valuable space at the cafe. Um, or there's nowhere to breastfeed in public places. There's endless dummies and nappies and creams. And what even is a breast pad anyway? Um, I guess we're, in terms of the design of the mobile itself, we were thinking of the mobile being an instantly recognisable um, object that comes along with a baby in a home. Um, it's scaled to fit this space, the home of um, the M Pavilion, and it's only on closer inspection that you see it's actually referencing all those other layers of life. Yeah, and it's also um, a kind of gesture of inclusion. So we're, we're kind of welcoming more layers than the, the cute, and we're welcoming more layers of the kind of sublime lands of unicorns jumping over clouds. So in a way, we're trying to rupture um, the kind of facade of the pastel-coloured perfection and the constantly Instagrammable daily moments, um, which I feel every... Like, I mean, I don't have a child, obviously, but I feel like everyone has a bit of an Instagrammable anxiety, and I think this was just a kind of an offer of that, that bring your kids, bring the screaming, bring the breast pumps, bring whatever, because it's all kind of welcome. So that was our, that was our kind of proposal for the space. Yeah. It's all part, like a cele celebration of the banality of yeah. parenthood. And ironically, we've Instagrammed it about 100 times. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much, Natalie and Caitlin, for being here and for making this amazing thing. I'm going to take a break. Um, it's playtime. So do whatever you want to do. Um, my baby's on a walk somewhere being sent to sleep. I'm not sure where they've gone. But please make use of the microwave if you need to use it, the um, change mats. I think there's going to be coffee happening. If you've got your mug from home, it's free. Um, just do whatever you need to do. Um, let your babies crawl around or wriggle or spew. Um, just, yeah, don't let your babies pull the mobile, please, um, uh, for all of our safety. Um, but, yeah, otherwise, just take over the space. We've given maybe, like, 20 or 30 minutes, depending on how it goes, and then we'll re reconvene for uh, a chat with all of you and with the speakers about how cities and domestic architecture can accommodate parents better. So, yeah. Okay, thank you very much.